the Mintcast, the official podcast of Mint Press News, a news service dedicated to watchdog journalism that holds the powerful to account and goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories the corporate media doesn't want you to see. I'm your host, Alan McLeod. And I'm Whitney Webb, and together we are going to not only discuss and analyze the big stories that the government and corporations want kept under wraps, but also revisit past events that have shaped our world, but that the media has helped to, tr- helped to hide for decades. Today will be a bit of an interesting episode since I am recovering from a head cold and Alan is sheltering from a huge thunderstorm in Barcelona and is recording from a room with a considerable echo, but none of that will be stopping us this week. So now let's jump straight into some of the world's top stories. Bipartisan support for Trump's aggressive Iran policy reveals the hollowness of Russiagate. This is a story written by none other than you, Whitney Webb. Russia has uh, constantly been portrayed in the press by politicians uh, as a grave danger to the freedom of the United States. Many stated that Trump's decision to speak with Putin by telephone about the situation in Venezuela was proof that he was directly taking orders from the man in Moscow. Yet the Trump administration uh, is also directly threatening Iran and with the possibility of a war directly benefiting Russia, those same Russiagate promoters have been silent. A war in Iran would likely shut down much of the oil supply out of the Middle East and spike prices as happened after the Iraq invasion, leaving non-Middle Eastern oil producers such as Russia on top. The White House's aggressive rhetoric and sanctions against Iran have also pushed the Middle Eastern country to rely more closely on Russia and China for trade. Yet many of Putin's supposed fiercest critics, such as neoconservative writer turned woke reality TV star Bill Kristol and Michael McFaul, the former US ambassador to Russia, have been leading proponents for increased hostilities with Iran. This leaves many wondering whether countering Russia or pursuing a militaristic policy which helps keep arms contractors uh, in the money was the real goal of Russiagate from day one, considering this outcome. Right, and and you know this has really been the crux of the whole um, uh, of my whole article because these major proponents of Russiagate, you know, people that that you mentioned, Crystal McFall. Um, you know, these people at, at a national level are really considered in the U.S. or at least by the mainstream media to be like leading critics of Putin. Um, and, and here they are, you know, supporting a regime change in Iran, which actually benefits Russia to, to a significant degree, especially Russia's oil industry, which, you know, U.S. sanctions and, and the U.S., uh, the Trump administration specifically, too, um, has really been trying to cripple. Um, and, and, you know, uh, the Iran policy uh, of the Trump administration would also increase Russia's uh, clout and influence in the Middle East. So what we have here, you know, this um, the, the, this seeming... Um, disconnect here from you know the these russia gators or whatever you want to call them um you know offers a um, a rare glimpse into what's really behind uh the russiagate narrative and the hysteria that's followed and i argue in my piece that this is really about militarism because if you look back to the origins of russiagate and robbie martin who we interviewed on the last podcast his documentary series does a really good job of tracing this back it's really the neoconservatives who started Russiagate, which is no surprise, and that's why you've seen a lot of, um, you know, um, push for militarism as the solution to Russiagate. So, you know, obviously, if the 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 solution being pushed by all these top Russiagaters is more militarism, at any time where the the thing to do to actually counter Russia would involve winding down that militarism. I mean, that's where we see what Russiagate is really about because that doesn't happen. Because obviously, if they wanted to counter Russia, they wouldn't be pursuing this this uh, you know regime change uh, effort. They wouldn't be pursu- uh, pursuing regime change in Iran, but they are. And you know, this is really uh, the fact that they're not. There's no push uh, of this Russiagate hysteria to wind down, wind this down. Shows that what's re- the, the real motivation behind Russiagate is increasing militarism, increasing weapon sales. Um, and uh, to you know, Eastern European nations uh, and NATO, and you know, and then also advancing this militaristic policy, um, really anywhere around the world, where they can use Russia as a convenient boogeyman. Right, that's uh, that's what you wrote in your piece. I was going to quote to you uh, a little, art, uh, little couple of sentences that you wrote. The goal of Russiagate is not actually about countering Putin or Russian geopolitical influence. 
It is about promoting the expansion and widespread adoption of hypermilitarism by both the establishment left and the establishment right in the United States. Right. And so, you know, what we've really seen in Russiagate, um, the establishment right was already a part of that, right? Um, uh, during, you know, for, for years, I mean, they've been sort of promoting that thing too, especially after Ukraine. And what we've seen with Russiagate is really the, the establish, uh, really bringing the establishment left into this push for hypermilitarism. And that's why Russiagate has been so, um, so often portrayed as, as a Democrat issue, even though its origins, if you look back at it, really go back to the neocons. Um, and it's really allowed, you know, the neoconservative policy agenda to colonize, uh, you know, the establishment left in the U.S. to a greater extent um, than it was before, which I think is really dangerous. And I think that's why we're seeing, you know, so, so many, um, you know, pushes for war, even from people that used to consider themselves anti-war on cable news. I mean, Rachel Maddow is the clearest example of that. I mean, she was a strong critic of neoconservative foreign policy in the Bush administration. And not that long ago, she was asking people to think of John Bolton as a human being and was basically endorsing regime change in Venezuela. And so this is what Russiagate is really all about. It's, it's, it's about creating a consensus between establishment left and establishment right in the U.S. to increase hypermilitarism and to really, you know, um, push, you know, towards the fulfillment of neoconservative policy agenda um, in the U.S., which is hypermilitarism and, and aggressive U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, it's so interesting. I've been writing about Russia for when Russia Gate for a long time since 2017, I think, and uh, it's really interesting the utility uh, of Russia Gate for so many people. For one, it allows the Democrats, for instance, to ignore their own failings, and it's uh, a convenient uh, scapegoat to put all of the uh, blame on Hillary Clinton losing absolutely. to Trump. Absolutely, absolutely. And then. And then you've got the uh, the media also um, benefiting from this, not only from uh, big, uh, uh, much bigger uh, ratings and such, but also that they get to start to use Russia Gate and Russian fake news as a way to re-establish control over the internet. Right. Well, it has many purposes, right? But um, you know what I argue in my article, I, I lay out um, in in I guess I would consider it great detail. Um, all the different ways that Russia is benefiting from Iran's regime change policy, or the, 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 the uh, policy of regime change in Iran. And you would think that that would get some coverage, and it does to a certain extent, you know, you know, it's because it, it's so obvious, especially with the, the oil angle, and it's even been mentioned in, you know, CNN and Bloomberg, but it hasn't, you know, um, that hysteria that has really defined Russiagate has not even touched I Iran at all. Um, and that should be, you know, a big giveaway to, to, you know, critically thinking people um, who, you know, are, are looking at this issue about what's really going on here. Sure. For all the talk of Russiagate, of course, then our next story is about uh, the United States interfering in foreign elections on a huge scale that hit the news this week, but did not get anything like the attention. And that was, Mike Pompeo threatens to intervene in British democracy to stop Corbyn becoming uh, Prime Minister. So, in a leaked recording given to the Washington Post, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo revealed he will intervene to stop Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn becoming Britain's next Prime Minister. In a meeting with Jewish leaders, Pompeo said, It could be that Mr Corbyn manages to run the gauntlet and get elected. It's possible. You should know we won't wait for him to do those things, to begin to push back. We will do our level best. It's too risky and too important and too hard once it's already happened. This response was met with thunderous applause from the audience. Although the next elections are not scheduled until 2022, the Conservative Party is in disarray currently and is choosing a new leader as Theresa May has stepped down in shame over Brexit. And the prospect of a new general election soon is a distinct possibility. The revelation of potential massive US interference in UK politics provoked an angry reaction on social media. They did it in Latin America, Africa and Asia. Now the US government wants to overthrow democracy in Britain, tweeted The Guardian's George Monbiot. Still waiting for a UK government spokesperson to express their outrage. Hello? However, as Monbiot alluded to, the mainstream response was distinctly muted. 
Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of Labour in September 2015 and has produced Labour's most radical policy proposals in decades and has led the party to huge increases in both membership and votes and could be poised to become the next Prime Minister if an election were called immediately. Right, so like this comment from Pompeo is is just like so outrageous and indefensible. But you know what? Um, it really shows, you know, how the Trump administration is using like this out in the open mafia esque approach towards diplomacy and global relations. You know, I mean, Pompeo is basically, you know, acting like a mob boss instead of Secretary of well, well, as past Secretary of States have acted in public. You know, I mean, he's just really. I mean, he you can just tell he just doesn't care. Um, but, you know, honestly, his comments um, are, are just an open admission of the meddling that the U.S. has, has done in, in the U.K. for decades, um, particularly meddling done by the CIA, which actually Pompeo, as everyone hopefully remembers, uh, he used to be CIA director. And, you know, this sort of meddling of the CIA and, and the U.S. government in, in the United Kingdom is really... Um, generally been against left-wing political movements and left-wing governments. A good example would be in the 1970s um, when the UK establishment and the US establishment worked together to undermine the Labour government of Harold Wilson. Um, so it later came out um, a few decades after, or I think it was less than a decade um, after Wilson left office, um, that MI5, uh, together with the CIA, they, they had planned some sort of military coup against Wilson that Wilson was aware of, and he was afraid he and his whole cabinet were going to be arrested or something like that. And then the head of, and part of that was um, spurred by the fact that the head of CIA counterintelligence had told uh, former MI5 officer Peter Wright that Harold Wilson was actually a Soviet spy, and this is according to Wright's uh, memoirs. And lo and behold, Corbyn has also been accused of being a Russian spy and a secret communist, and his potential future government has also been threatened with a military coup. So the parallels there, I think, are pretty obvious. And so given what happened with Wilson, I really don't think it's, it, would, it would be going too far to say that U.S. intelligence could be involved here again uh, in, the, in, in these efforts that we've been seeing you know, for years in the media to prevent Corbyn from becoming prime minister. And I think Pompeo's comments are just an open admission of that. Yeah, but it's not only the, the only uh, example of U.S. interference in U.K. politics of late. For instance, Donald Trump just endorsed former Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, for Prime Minister. <coughs> and that's very likely that he will become the next Prime Minister, according to the bookmakers and uh, the gamblers. He also labelled the current Labour Mayor of London and Muslim Sadiq Khan, what was it, a stone-called loser, he's called him? And uh, you know, going a little bit further back, Barack Obama told the people of Scotland not to vote for independence in 2014. And this is, uh, you know, just uh, just another example of what's been going on for quite a long time. The media has also been totally uh, leading this uh, campaign of Corbyn delegitimization. In fact, there was. Uh, a study from the London School of Economics that had a section about the media coverage of Corbyn uh, titled Delegitimization Through Lie, Scorn and Ridicule. Wow. Well, you know, that's really not surprising. And, you know, because, I mean, honestly, even, you know, as an American in observing, you know, UK media coverage of Corbyn, I mean, sometimes the smears are just overtly um, absurd. So um, one of the main things that's really defined, you know, the smear campaign against Corbyn has been accusing him of anti-Semitism. And, you know, at, at one point, I think it was Tony Blair uh, was giving a speech in Israel and he was like, yeah, um, Corbyn's an anti-Semite, but he just doesn't know it. And, you know, and, and like all this stuff. I mean, it, it's just like really on its face, just insane. And, you know, it's really clear that there are powerful people in the U.S. and the U.K. that are very uncomfortable with Corbyn's stance uh, towards supporting uh, Palestinian rights. And um, that freaks them out because, you know, Netanyahu's uh uh, of Israel is currently trying to annex the West Bank and all of that, and obviously Corbyn becoming prime minister um, could throw a kink in those plans, right? So that's just one thing there. But another thing I'd like to focus on that hasn't gotten as much analysis and attention, um, I guess you could argue, as the anti-Semitism smear is is this idea that's been thrown around in UK media that that I've alluded I, I alluded to just a, a little bit ago about how the UK military might try and overthrow Corbyn if he becomes prime minister, or they might mutiny or something like that. And there's been a couple reports of that over the years. Um, one of them was from 
was covered in the Daily Mail and the Sunday Times in, in 2015 when Corbyn first became leader um, of the Labor Party. And um, one of those, the Daily Mail said, quote, military chiefs have warned that they would be prepared to take, quote, direct action to stop Mr. Corbyn if he sees off labor rebels and makes it into number 10 in 2020, end quote. And then we have another guy, um, a, a serving general, like an active duty general, um, who told the Sunday Times uh, that same year, quote, there would be mass resignations at all levels and you would face the very real prospect of an event which would effectively be a mutiny. The army just wouldn't stand for it, meaning uh, it, meaning uh, the election of, of Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister. Continuing on, um, the general staff would not allow a prime minister to jeopardize the security of this country and I think people would use whatever means possible, fair or foul, to prevent that. You can't put a maverick in charge of a country's security. And here this general is referring to the fact that he, um, that Corbyn doesn't um, want to continue redeveloping, a, I think it's called the Trident program, the, 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 the nuclear uh, weapons program of the UK. He doesn't want to uh, keep advancing that. He wants to turn, you know, be more pacifistic in, in foreign policy. And so, you know, if we fast forward just a few years uh, after that in 2015, I mean, that this same sort of narrative has been pitched on and off by UK media. A recent one, too, came out last year um, from The Telegraph, and it was titled, uh, Could the Army Overthrow a Corbyn Government? Right. So they've been throwing this out there. Um, here and again, and I think that's um, something that should be really concerning because if you consider the fact that you know these um, these outlets are sort of like pr promoting you know the, the sort of um, narrative that Corbyn could be overthrown by a military coup, but they're not like openly denouncing that as horrible and fascist. I mean, that should really tell you something um, <laughs> because I mean it's basically like Pinochet style stuff here. They're basically saying you know. You know, if, if someone like Jeremy Corbyn comes into power, we have to like, we just have to take him out sort of thing is what the military is openly saying. And the media is giving them a platform to, uh, to say that and not challenging them because obviously, I mean, that would lead to a military dictatorship or something just really horrible. And the fact they can't even call that out um, should scare us all. Well, if, if that does happen, if the United States does pull a Venezuela on the UK and Jeremy Corbyn is the Maduro, then my money would be on Nigel Farage to be the Wang Guaido of the UK. I think that's uh, for sure. But what you're talking about, is, it's clear that these are not warnings from the media. These are threats. And we've yeah. seen scandal after scandal uh, with these uh, kind of ridiculous stories about Jeremy Corbyn being a KGB agent, as you said, a terrorist. There was even something in the UK called bow gates where the media decided that Jeremy Corbyn's angle of his bow at uh, the Cenotaph on uh, November 11th, it's Veterans Day in the US, it's called uh, Armistice Day in the UK, his bow wasn't uh, deep enough and that reflected that he didn't care about the dead troops. In fact, the Daily Mail, 10 days after Joe Cox was murdered by a terrorist in the UK, published an article by Dan Hodges called Labour Must Kill the Vampire Jezza. And in fact, there was a terrorist, Darren Osborne, who, uh, who drove into people using a van outside a mosque. He actually originally came to London precisely to kill Jeremy Corbyn. And in the inquest, it was oh found God. that he was a Daily Mail reader and he had been radicalised by the Daily Mail. Well, that's very disturbing. So anyway, going back to Pompeo's comments, right? I mean, if if there was some sort of push to do something like this, this sort of threat of a military coup, I mean, let's keep in mind, you know, what Pompeo here, who, who like loves to spread regime change everywhere, um, you know, what sort of threat he's sort of implying when he's saying the stuff about we won't wait for Corbyn to win to begin to push back, right? I mean, these people really have no shame, and, and they're not interested in international law. I mean, I think that's abundantly clear. So um, the fact that the U.S. also is, is just so willing, or at least the Trump administration, however you want to define it right now, is so willing to extend these sorts of threats to, like, its closest ally and basically threaten, like, the democracy if its closest ally, it's completely insane. And it just really shows you how... Um, well, for one thing, how close the UK establishment and the US establishment are, um, and, and how they and, and how they both view Corbyn as a threat, and also the extent to which they're willing to go uh, to keep him from getting into power. Really, really troubling stuff. Okay, from one US ally to another, let's go to this week's top story. It's Australia.
following US lead on Assange, Australia goes into a salt spree against free press. This one was written by Alex Rubenstein for Mint Press News. In shocking events that rarely occur in developed countries, Australia has begun a serious police crackdown against uh, investigative and adversarial journalism. Following the imprisonment and charges against Australia's most famous publisher, Julian Assange, the Australian Federal Police have conducted two raids in as many days against journalists. Last week, police ransacked Sunday Telegraph reporter Annika Smithhurst's reference at residence in what they call a response to the, quote, alleged publishing of information classified as an official secret, which is an extremely serious matter with the potential to undermine Australia's national security. Smithhurst had just published a story warning that the intelligence services were attempting to increase their powers over the country. Smithhurst, a journalist, was herself the target of the attack rather than her whistleblower. Furthermore, police refused to say whether she would be arrested at a later date for printing the story. The next day, police raided the ABC, Australian Broadcasting Corporation's, news office with arrest warrants for multiple staff members and downloaded over 9,000 documents from ABC computers. The raid was in response to a report published by ABC that showed evidence of extrajudicial killings of unarmed men and children in Afghanistan by elite special forces. It also provided information on the Australian soldier who severed the hands off a dead insurgent with scalpels. In between these two events, radio broadcaster Ben Fordham, who broke a story about six boats attempting to enter Australia to immigrate, was contacted by Australian Home Affairs Department and pressured into revealing his source for the story, something which he refused to do. This series of raids may signify a new era of state intimidation against Australian journalists. Well, I think, you know, this this new era of state intimidation against journalists, I think it's pretty clear that it's not just in Australia. I mean, it's pretty much going throughout the entire Western world, specifically Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Um, one key point here is that, you know, a lot of the, the, main, the main raid here, you know, this had to do with reporting on war crimes. Uh, let's remember, too, that Julian Assange is also, um, you know, under threat largely also for publishing information on war crimes as well. Um, and at the same time, we've had this um, increasing uh, intimidation and, and threats against journalists for reporting on war crimes. We've also seen in the United States in particular um, an increasing number of pardons of um, military members who um, undeniably were involved in really heinous war crimes, murder of civilians, uh, desecration of dead bodies. I mean, you name it. It's just some really nasty stuff that we're seeing going on. So I, I, I definitely think those two things are connected here. Um, and that this is not ju this is aimed at intimidating journalism on, uh, uh, as a whole um, about ex exposing state secrets, but specifically focus on war crimes. Um, and, you know, another thing that's going on here, too, um, if we're, if we're going to step back and look at the big picture, also has to do with the jailing of whistleblowers. Um, so in, in this case in Australia, you know, they targeted the journalists, not the whistleblower. Um, but what we've been seeing for a long time is that whistleblowers have been up against really draconian sentences. Even former whistleblowers who were pardoned, like Chelsea Manning, have been, you know, sent back to jail. Um, another type of intimidation. And I think what we're going to be, what we've seen in Australia now with people, with, with journalists who use whistleblowers as sources, that intimidation is definitely going to continue if they can't. If they feel like they can't stop whistleblowers through this intimidation that they've, that they've done through these, you know, multi-year sentences for whistleblowing, which are technically protected under law um, in these countries, I mean, they're, they're just going to go and, and they're going to try and either ruin the careers or, or imprison or intimidate the journalists themselves to keep this information from coming out. And let's remember, too, that this is going on at a time when we're seeing, you know, these governments... Um, actively push and support uh, regime change in other countries or wars abroad or participate in, in the drone war or an in intelligence sharing. Uh, remember, Australia and, and the U.S. and the U.K. all intelligence shared through the Five Eyes group, right? So the, this is all, uh, you know, I would argue interconnected to a significant degree just because, uh, you know, the war crimes, the crimes of, of their intelligence communities, the control of intelligence communities over, you know, their federal governments, all of this is really cre uh, is interconnected because the intelligence communities themselves of these countries are interconnected.
Australian journalists themselves are certainly feeling that pressure. So, for instance, John Lyons, the executive director of ABC News, said, as a journalist, it's a real violation. Why is this allowed to happen in Australia? The message, according to him, was clear. Watch out, because we will be able to find out who you are. And that's a direct quote from the head of uh, ABC or the executive director of ABC News. However, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, said it didn't really trouble him. He said, it never troubles me that our laws are being used and being upheld, adding that the matter pertains to the Australian Federal Police and not to the government. And he also refused to comment on Smithhurst's original story. He said, Australia believes strongly in freedom of the press and we have clear rules and protections for freedom of the presses. Now, this is some real Orwellian stuff. And if this was going in uh, in Turkey or, God forbid, an enemy state like Venezuela or somewhere, it would have been much bigger news, I think, because this is a, a clear and obvious crackdown on freedom of speech. Right. And, and what's interesting here, too, is that this is, you know, ABC News of Australia is like one of the top mainstream media outlets of Australia. So it's really um, telling that this hasn't gotten more coverage from mainstream media in the US or the UK or other Western countries. Um, because the, the message here too is like, it's not just independent journalists, it's not just smaller outlets, it's all journalists, right? If they're gonna go after mainstream journalists that often tow the official line on stuff, um, you know, people should, uh, those, those journalists should see what's going on. And of course, all of this really started um, with the precedent of, of going after Assange, which has been going on for years. But obviously, as we know, after he was expelled from the Ecuadorian embassy has just really um, spiraled out of control and is totally insane and criminal. Um, but, you know, so another story that I want to bring up here in this segment of our top story is a report I, I had, um, I, I wrote that came out last Friday that's about, um, you know, concurrent efforts that are going along uh, with this that, you know, this is, uh, it, it's totally different though, but it's related. So um, what I'd like to talk about a little bit is about censorship efforts against independent media um, and efforts to control the narrative. Of course, um, this is part of the broader war against journalism um, as a whole, but obviously isn't, you know, uh, raids by police. I mean, that's obviously um, much more severe than what uh, we're going to be talking about now. But of course, it's also always important to point out uh, censorship efforts against um, independent media because this affects press news specifically. And it's, it's aimed at homogenizing the media landscape in favor of mainstream sources that tow the establishment line and, and hurting independent news sources that report on stories that the mainstream media intentionally avoids. So let's get into that for a second. Okay, so this report that came out um, last week it, um, is titled The Trust Project, Big Media in Silicon Valley's Weaponized Algorithm Silence Dissent. Um, as the title implies, this is about a specific organization that is called the Trust Project. And, you know, if you look at its website and you go through its stuff, it seems pretty benign. Um, it's about the, its main activities um, are about making these what they call trust indicators. It's kind of similar to NewsGuard's. Um, if we go back to NewsGuard, the, the neocon fact, uh, fact checking organization and news rating organization that Mint Press wrote about um, earlier this year. Um, they had sort of criteria and, and made like a nutrition label is what they call it uh, for news sites. So the Trust Project is pretty similar. They have indicators um, that they list and they seem pretty reasonable. But here's the thing. How these trust indicators are, are being implemented is not transparent and they're being used um, as Im embedded code that no one reading the web page sees. It's embedded in the HTML of the web page itself. And these are uh, called machine readable signals, and those are picked up by Google, Twitter, and Facebook, and Microsoft's Bing. And those are being used to promote certain sites over others in the search, search alg algorithms of these pages. And what's interesting is that these trust indicators, the, Im the signals, are only available to either media partners of the Trust Project or uh, people that the Trust Project uh, identifies and, and certifies as qualified news publishers. So um, I think you can see, I think listeners will be able to see where this is going. Um, but let me give an example of who the Trust Project's current media partners are um, in case uh, you're not sure where this is going. So um, the, the media partners who were involved uh, in creating these, these new standards for news algorithms, they include the Washington Post owned by the world's richest man, Jeff Bezos, 
Uh, the Economist, directed, uh, which is directed by the wealthy Rothschild family and the Agnellis family. Uh, the Globe and Mail of Canada, owned by Canada's richest family, the Thompsons, who also own Thompson Reuters. Um, other partners include the New York Times, Hearst Television, the BBC, and the USA Today Network. Um, and other, um, they also have a news leadership cancel, council that's also involved in deciding these standards. They include the uh, head of Google News, uh, Richard Gingras, who also co-founded the Trust Project, um, Andrew Anker, Facebook's director of product management, and uh, representatives from the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and Gizmodo Media. So I think you can get an idea of what sort of uh, publishers they are supporting and which ones they are not supporting. Um, if we go into who funds them, which we can get into in a second, um, it'll, it'll become even more clear um, uh, who this is intended to favor. Um, and it definitely won't be helping Mint Press, that's for sure. Um, but as I, I, I point out in my article, uh, the point of the trust project, even though it talks about uh, these standards and whatever that seem okay and about like um, having uh, more transparency in major newsrooms. I mean, this is really all about the algorithms and this is admitted on the webpage. The origin of the plan to found the, the Trust Project was about manipulating algorithms. The head of the Trust Project, who's a journal journalist named Sally Lehrman, she uh, came up with the idea for the Trust, uh, trust Project talking to a um, uh, a machine learning specialist from Twitter and head of Google News, Richard Gingras. Um, and of course, Google and Facebook are top funders of the Trust, uh, the trust Project in addition to several uh, controversial tech billionaires, including Mint Press's favorite tech billionaire to write critical stories of Pierre Omidyar. And another one, Craig Newmark, who's the billion found, a billionaire founder of Craigslist, um, who's also involved in funding a lot of similar tech initiatives uh, that Pierre Omidyar funds. Um, and we also have the foundation um, of Mike Markula, who is the former CEO of Apple. And we also have the Knight Foundation, uh, which is a major investor in NewsGuard, um, which, um, of course, uh, was rated. Uh, uh, remember that Mint Press was rated very poorly by NewsGuard, largely because of our um, critical reporting on them. And um, we have a full response to their extremely dishonest rating of Mint Press News on the website. I encourage any readers or listeners uh, interested to check that out. Yeah, well, this, uh, this new company reminds me a lot, as you said, of NewsGuard, but also of uh, Prop or Not, the company that, that came out in 2016 and really got a lot of buzz in the media, especially the Washington Post, right. which uh, it purported to show you which uh, which news organizations were trustworthy and which were potentially Russian-sponsored fake news. But the problem was is that once you actually started looking into who, were, who was proper or not, it seemed they had a lot of connections with the Atlantic Council, which is pretty much NATO's offshoots, uh, offshoot think tank. And uh, it, it was really there to, it seemed like they were just, uh, these big companies were just algorithm gaming, trying to delegitimize and disincentivize uh, critical voices in alternative media, left or right. And I think we have to really get away from the idea that fake news is just, purport, uh, just uh, made by Macedonian teenagers in their bedrooms. Powerful yeah. <laughs> news corporations really share fake news whenever it's in their interest to do so, whether that be huge wars like Iraq, big political events like elections or referenda or things like Russiagate. We've seen so much of that. And now we've got, you know, organization after organization trying to come along and say, we are going to protect you from fake news when actually a lot of them are involved in producing the fake news in the first place. So it's a bit like wolves coming along, offering to guard your sheep for you. It just doesn't work, does it? No, it doesn't. And so let, uh, based on, what, on, on the point you just made, Alan, let's go back to something that happened really recently um, about this fake news about North Korea. So there was this story that came out of a super right wing known for its fake news outlet in South Korea. Um, I forget the name. I think it's like Chosun Ebo or, or something similar to that. That's right, yes. Right. And um, it was poorly sourced. It was a single anonymous source, the report. And this story was heavily circulated by all the mainstream outlets, the Associated Press, Reuters, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and, and you know, the, the list goes on. 
Um, and then, you know, and, and the story was supposedly that Kim Jong-il, or Kim Young-chol, uh, sorry, um, who was like the, um, he's like the chief negotiator with this uh, deal with the Trump administration. He's a really high-ranking, uh, prominent official in the North Korean government. Um, it alleged that he had been purged and, and murdered and, and all this stuff and, like, disappeared and, and what have you. And then, you know, just a few days later after this, this story was widely circulated, um, you know, the, the guy that was supposedly murdered appears with, um, you know, <laughs> Kim Jong-un in, in public at, like, some art gallery. Um, and there was no accountability for it. And actually, the Washington Post, even after it came out um, that this was totally fake news... Uh, the its decision, uh, its way of, of pursuing damage control is to say, yeah. So this rumor about uh, Kim Young Chol being being purged, um, it's important, even though it was wrong, uh, or something like that, right, Alan? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I think that's um that's pretty telling here that these are um you know the outlets involved in deciding uh what who 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 is a qualified publisher uh according to the trust project um which is pretty telling but while we're going back talking about like Russiagate you sort of brought that up a little bit um one of the top funders of the trust project who I alluded to a second ago is Pierre Omidyar who funds the trust project through his democracy fund um the democracy fund which is interesting um, because it uh, is interesting because it funds um, lots of shady things. One of which being uh, Bill Crystal's Defending Democracy Together Initiative and Bill Crystal's Alliance for Securing Democracy. The latter of those being responsible for the Hamilton 68 so-called Russian bot monitoring dashboard that was super untransparent and just aimed at increasing hysteria um, and, and keeping people away from uh, certain topics and narratives um, that were popular or trending on social media. So, you know, um, Democracy Fund is funding the Trust Project. It's also funding uh, Bill Crystal, who is... Uh, an insane neocon who has just lied and lied and lied the U.S. into war in so many different instances. Um, and he's used the money from the Democracy Fund to found a new publication, the sequel to the, the Weekly Standard, which is his old publication. Uh, it's called The Bulwark. Um, and the co-founder and editor of large of Crystal's new publication, The Bulwark, is Charles Sykes, who was on the Democ Democracy Fund's National Advisory Committee. So, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that uh, there's something up here. Um, it also, um, you know, it's also worth pointing out that uh, Crystal's, um, an associate of Crystal's, and, and really his, like, protege, uh, this guy named Jamie Fly, who works for the German Marshall Fund, also involved in Hamilton 68, uh, he stated last October that the social media purges we saw of independent media pages, that that was just the beginning and that more purges would be on the way. And lo and behold, um, there was another recent round of YouTube uh, censorship coming out uh, not that long ago where they demonetized a bunch of channels. Um, and a big driver of who was um, demonetized and all of that was actually decided by the Anti-Defamation League, um, who has now uh, teamed up with these big tech companies that are involved in the trust project, Google, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Microsoft, um, and actually Omidyar is the guy who got uh, the Anti-Defamation League involved in Silicon Valley censorship because he gave the seed money for their new center in Silicon Valley that was aimed at creating what the ADL um, calls the Cyber Hate Problem Solving Lab. But it's worth pointing out too that the ADL um, is basically an extension of the Israel lobby in a lot of ways um, because they um, basically label most criticisms of Israel, including m most valid criticisms of Israel, they call it hate speech. Um, an example is that they, they um, for example, if anyone characterizes Israeli policies towards Palestinians as either racist or, or being like apartheid or they accuse Israel of war crimes or attempted ethnic cleansing, all of which is super well documented, the ADL describes that as anti-Semitic, they describe it as hate speech, and the ADL has even labeled explicitly Jewish organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace as being anti-Semitic for their criticisms of Israel's government. So this isn't an honest arbiter of truth here, um, and they're deeply involved in the censorship effort, and, and there's a lot of overlap between them and the Trust Project, not just with Pierre Omidyar, but the other guy who funds the Trust Project, the other tech billionaire who's Craig Newmark, who is also a key donor and advisor to the ADL. 
um, and gave them $100,000 for the specific response center, and he's on their tech advisory board. Um, so I think it's worth pointing out that there is a, um, you know, it's not just NATO, too, um, that's involved here. We have, a special, we have special interest groups like the ADL as well, in addition to the Atlantic Council. Um, and, you know, it, it's just getting really out of hand, the censorship, and it, this is not uh, going to end well if independent media um, doesn't start to do something. And also if, you know, uh, you know, mainstream media continues to not be concerned about this, and obviously they're not going to be concerned about it. Uh, probably ever, and that's because they want to wipe out their competition, um, and that's why they're partnering with groups like this and partnering with big tech, partnering with Google and Facebook and all these other groups uh, to try and take out their competition. And so what we're really seeing is sort of this this nexus of um, you know Silicon Valley, the government, special interest groups, um, and mainstream media sort of coming together to protect you know what I guess we could broadly refer to as the establishment. The mainstream media is very interested in establishing its its dominance over uh, directing narratives that it has lost in the information age and because of the internet. Um, and that is really what the Trust Project is all about. It's a war against diversity and the quality of the media dressed up as an attempt to improve it, isn't it? I mean. The thing is, everybody tries to game the, the system and the algorithms, but the problem is is that if this was DuckDuckGo or Ask.com uh, were doing this, nobody would care. The problem is, is that Google has just got so much power and is so important in the media that it's become this behemoth which uh, controls whatever we see, really, isn't it? Right. Um, actually, um, this isn't in my article, but um, I have a, I, I've collaborated sometimes with this uh, really awesome journalist in, in Argentina. He sent me a video where um, he was, uh, it was of another journalist in Argentina who was using his phone, um, the Google uh, assistant, and he was asking for information on scandals of different political candidates, specifically uh, Mauricio Macri, who's current president of Argentina's super right wing, um, pretty, pretty fascist, I would say, and, and just super corrupt. Um, and the other one being uh, Cristina uh, Fernandez de, de, de Kirchner. Um, who uh, is more left-wing. I mean, I wouldn't say she's uncorrupt, but, I mean, compared to Macri, uh, doesn't really even hold a candle. Um, so anyway, Google, um, if you ask Google for scandals on Macri, it says that it can't help you. It says you have to check the web. But if you ask for uh, corruption scandals about Kirchner, it comes up with the results right away. But any sort of negative... Um, search prompt for Macri, if you, you try to use Google Voice or Google Assistant on your smartphone, it doesn't come up. And it was just really amazing to see that. Uh, so that's just an example, not in America, but in, a, in another country of, of Google's influence uh, in, in controlling information for political gain. And, you know, if they're doing it in countries like Argentina, you bet they're doing it in places like the U.S., the United Kingdom, and other countries around the world. All right, let's move on to our next segment, the Flashback Files. So, The Flashback Files is uh, a piece about an issue that happened a while ago and may not have received the attention that it deserved at the time, but it's still relevant to how uh, things uh, happen right now and it's still relevant to understanding current events. And this week we're talking about the Chagos Islands, a tiny archipelago in the Indian Ocean that most people have understandably never heard of. During the 1960s, it was part of the British Empire and the UK government decided to split the Chagos Islands from Mauritius and between 1967 and 1973, it evicted around 1,500 local Chagossians in order to build a huge military base in a strategic location. Since then, the Chagossian people have lived poor quality lives as refugees in Mauritius or exiled in the United Kingdom. The Mauritian Prime Minister has called the situation a crime against humanity and the International Court of Justice ruled Britain illegally split the islands and should give them back to Mauritius. In its 25th of Jan uh, February 2019 ruling, the court deemed the United Kingdom's separation of the Chagos Islands from the rest of Mauritius uh, were both uh, when they were both colonial uh, territories to be unlawful and found that the UK is obliged to end its administration of the islands as rapidly as possible. Right, so um, this is a huge issue. I mean, it has decades and decades of history. But first, um, let's talk briefly about why 
Um, the UK and the US were interested in this really small um, group of islands. And this is because during the time uh, when you know the UK forcefully depopulated the island of, of thousands of inhabitants, what they wanted, uh, what the UK and US uh, uh, you know, governments and militaries wanted to do here was they wanted to establish a base close to India as a way of intimidating India because both countries were concerned that India would pivot towards the Soviet Union and they wanted to put this base here pretty close to India as a way of intimidating them from forming such an alliance and to also prevent India from dominating uh, the Indian Ocean. They wanted that, of course, to be dominated by the U.S. and the U.K. So since then, um, it's this this base has really only increased in importance for the U.S. military specifically um, because it's frequently used um, in military operations targeting the Middle East. So as an example, it was used uh, during for military operations, U.S. military operations during the uh, Iranian Revolution, during the Gulf War, and the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. It continues to be used to this day. Um, it's also increasingly important now because it. Um, because of its location, and this is just talking about its location, um, you know, it bridges several different theaters of operation for the U.S. military. This includes South Africa, Southern Africa, um, and, you know, that whole coast of the Africa going up, uh, the Middle East, and South Asia. And this more or less unites uh, several different U.S. military policies, including, you know, all the military adventurism in the Middle East, uh, the drone war, and all these special uh, ops deployments in Africa, and also the U.S.'s China containment policy, which is specifically aimed at preventing Chinese dominance in regional waters, including around the area um, where this base is stationed, and also the South China Sea and all these areas around there. And let's also keep in mind that the UK is also interested in the space because they've used it for UK for joint US-UK operations and also specifically UK military operations. Um, so this is why the space is there and why they're not going to let it go anytime soon. And another reason why the space is so important to the US specifically is because it is basically, you know, off the radar for journalists. There have, not a single journalist has set foot on this base in like over four, like like almost four decades. I think it's like 38 years or something like that. And this base has been a huge part of the CIA's post-9-11 war on terror, secret rendition, and torture programs. It is a CIA black site. I mean, this is basically confirmed. Um, even though, uh, you know, it, it was confirmed and then the release of the documents confirming it were blocked because UK um, officials were concerned about backlash, domestic backlash, and all of this stuff. Um, and they were forced to confirm that it's been used for refueling for CIA rendition flights, that um, tortured uh, or terrorist suspects have been imprisoned there and tortured there and all this stuff. So um, obviously that's in the U.S.'s interest to keep that open because it's basically a Guantanamo Bay that no one, you know, that isn't as infamous as Guantanamo Bay because, because of, you know... Um, how infamous Guantanamo base is. People in the U.S. pay attention to it, and they pay attention when they when they hear that name and some sort of scandal, right? But if they hear about the the base and, and the Chagos Islands, which is um, on the island of Diego Garcia, so it's you know the Diego Garcia base. If they hear about that, most Americans don't don't have any clue what what, what you're talking about there. So. Um, that, that is why uh, this was done, and the depopulation of this island, you know, was done so that the U.S. and the U.K. could justify the construction of this base on an uninhabited island, and they wouldn't have to deal um, with pushback from locals, uh, such as happened in, in military bases all over the world. A really good example would be um, on the Japanese island of Okinawa, uh, where locals have been trying to get the military base kicked out of there because U.S. soldiers... Um, pollute the whole area. Um, there's been numerous cases of U.S. soldiers raping Japanese women or of killing people. Um, so they didn't want that. Um, and also another level uh, here, that, that, or another uh, angle here that's important is that um, the U.S. military and the U.K. militaries have severely polluted Diego Garcia. Um, they have pumped out radioactive waste. They have pumped out human sewage into this uh, tropical island paradise. And um, have really just treated it very poorly, largely because there's no oversight and because the native inhabitants who want to protect their island um, have been denied a voice and denied any rights uh, to what happens to their homeland. Right, and uh, it's reasonably, uh, it's reasonably, uh, it's a bit of a hot issue in the UK for those who know about it at least. I know that, for instance, UK uh, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn supports the right of return of the people and has expressed his dismay that Britain was ignoring international law. 
There's a good uh, documentary about this called Stealing a Nation by John Pilger, and one that's just come out is uh, another one called Another Paradise. And of course, why this is highly relevant now is uh, the Iran situation, where there's a build-up of military tensions between the US and Iran. Uh, there, was re there was recently a story that the US was planning to send 120,000 troops to the area for a potential invasion of the country. And so Diego Garcia or the Chagos Islands will be absolutely key in that. Right, that's a really good point. As I mentioned before, it was used before um, for military operations uh, when the Iranian Revolution happened. So it absolutely makes sense that the U.S. would be counting on the space um, if they were ever to go forward with military operations against Iran in the near future, which is seeming increasingly likely, and that's really troubling. Um, of course, also let's remember, too, the drone war. Um, this space is important to that as well. Um, and it's just, you know, this is just another example of where a U.S. military base has been parked on land without the consent of its native inhabitants and the native inhabitants of that area have suffered tremendously and the environment has suffered tremendously and it's all been done in the name of U.S. empire and of pursuing militaristic foreign policies that have no direct relation to U.S. national security interests. It's all about U.S. military uh, adventurism and expanding U.S. empire um, and, you know, in all of those other instances, it, it, it's criminal <laughs> and it's criminal here in the Chagos Islands, right? Um, Talking about John Pilger, John, John Pilger has done great work on this, and he's also done great work um, on a really similar case that we've seen too in the in the Marshall Islands, or the uh, which is another small uh, p p uh, island chain this time in the in the Pacific Ocean, and the lo the largest island there uh, in this small group of islands, you know, um, had a military base stuck on it, and all, you know U.S. military families lived there, and the native inhabitants were forced to this really small island. It's one of the most densely populated places in the world. Uh, the people there have no room to even grow their own food because the U.S. military base took over, like, most of their, you know, real estate, right? Um, and so that they have to pay all this money for imported canned food, um, and only certain products can make it in there. They don't have fresh fruit. They don't have fresh vegetables. So they have a major health care crisis on the island, and they have, like, an insane rate of, of diabetes per capita. Um, and what they do is they basically bus in the only employer is the U.S. military base. This is how they've set it up. It's like super neo-colonial. Uh, they pay them slave wages to be bussed across to the U.S. military base where they work as cleaners, they work in warehouses, stuff like that. And that's actually true, too. In the Chagos Islands, they bus in, um, or they bring in workers, mostly from the Philippines, uh, who are paid slave wages. I mean, they make like $6 a month. I mean, that's insane. These workers from the Philippines brought in to work on the Diego Garcia military base in the Chagos Islands. That makes like dollars a month. A lot of times when they come to work, their passports are seized by the U.S. Uh, military contractor that hires them. Um, it's just all, all in all around uh, exploitative and wrong, and more people should really know about um, these types of military bases because Chagos Islands is a really unique um, situation and it's really horrible but you know it's also not unique I mean there are other military bases like this and you know it really is important for uh, citizens of the UK and the US uh, to be aware that this is going on because this really has to change at some point I mean this is unsustainable and, and it's, it's just really criminal all right, from criminals and the U.S. Empire, that brings us to our next segment, the return of the Hall of Shame. And uh, the next person in inducted into the Wall of Shame, or the Hall of Shame, whichever you want to call it, is John Bolton, the current National Security Advisor to Donald Trump. In the news, uh, this week was his uh, role in increasing the uh, tensions in Iran. He was also key in hyping up tensions with Venezuela. And it's important to know who he is, because John Bolton, let's say, has had quite a colourful past. Uh, he started his political career, for instance, by volunteering for the arch-segregationist Barry Goldwater, who ran for president in 1964, opposing civil rights and running a white nationalist campaign where every other word out of his mouth began, began with an N. He was also a strong supporter of the Vietnam War, but purposely avoided military service in Vietnam, going to Yale instead. He also rose up the ranks of the Republican Party by being Senator Jesse Helms' protege, 
Helms was a culture warrior who made a career out of being an opponent of civil rights, disability rights, feminism, LGBT issues, affirmative action, abortion and religious freedom. With Bolton at his side, Helms lobbied the president to bar people with HIV from entering the US. And of course, Helms is also one of the chief architects of the US illegal sanctions and blockade of Cuba. Right, and so that's why it's really important to know John Bolton's history, because a lot of people know what John Bolton has been doing now, just since he's become National Security Advisor. But, you know, a really interesting uh, and very telling overlap here with his past uh, career, especially with Jesse Helms, is his interest in Cuba. So, you know, if you haven't noticed, um, because it doesn't get as much news as Bolton's role in, um, you know, Venezuela or Iran or any of these other places, um, John Bolton has had it out for Cuba forever. Um, and this goes back to his time with Jesse Helms. He's a huge supporter of the embargo against Cuba. He wants regime change in Cuba, and he's wanted it for years. Um, actually, going back to his time in the Bush administration, remember he had he wasn't just uh, the ambassador to the United Nations. Bolton had several roles in the State Department and, and elsewhere um, in, in the Bush administration. One of the things he tried to do when he was under, under, uh, under Secretary of State for Arms Control um, was during uh, the Bush, uh, George W. Bush's Axis of Evil speech, he tried really hard to get Cuba added to that list. Um, he was unsuccessful, um, largely because the claim that he used to try and justify Cuba's inclusion, he just completely made up. I mean, he literally just like invented it, and no one, not even the, the other neocons in the Bush administration took him seriously because it was just totally made up. And this was his claim that Cuba had a limited offensive biological warfare research and development program. Um, of course, this was totally not true, and everyone that tried to challenge him on it, uh, he threatened... Uh, and he like burst into rages and he tried to get people fired, you know, typical Bolton stuff. This is how Bolton operates. He is a dangerous man. Um, but anyway, he wasn't successful in getting Cuba included in the axis of evil. So what did he do? Well, he waited till he got into the Trump administration and then he created a new axis of evil, which John Bolton calls the Troika of Tyranny. And that is Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. And that is the guide of the Venezuela policy. That's also why you see, um, you know, Trump administration Venezuela policy frequently uh, singles out and, and mentions the alleged role of Cuba um, in supposedly propping up the Venezuelan government and all this stuff. Um, that's, that is the work of John Bolton right there. Um, going to another issue about John Bolton. I've written a lot about John Bolton. I wrote a four-part series on him uh, as soon as his, he was announced as National Security Advisor. Um, but before that, I wrote about how John Bolton came to be National Security Advisor, so let's go that, uh, back to that for a second. Uh, let's remember that Trump started off with H.R. Uh, McMaster as his National Security Advisor. I'm not a big fan of H.R. McMaster either, obviously, um, but it's worth pointing out that the reason he was fired was because of um, Trump's top donor, who is uh, Sheldon Adelson, and Sheldon Adelson teamed up with the Zionist Organization of America, run by Morton Klein, another um, Trump supporter, to get H.R. McMaster fired because H.R. McMaster did not want to tear up the Iran deal and he did not want to go to war with Iran. So um, what happened there was several months of lobbying on, on his part. And once H.R. McMaster um, was forced out, um, Sheldon Adelson asked that Bolton be hired in his place. I mean, this is all documented. I've written, I've written several reports on this. Um, so it's worth noting um, that John Bolton and Shuttle Adelson have been confidants for a long time. And actually, um, when H.R. McMaster was still National Security Advisor, um, he, uh, other staff uh, that have now since left the Trump administration tried to keep Bolton away from Trump uh, for a period of time and tried to keep him out of, uh, of meetings and, and, and tried to limit his access to the president. And Sheldon Adelson was the guy that tried to, that, that basically offered the workaround for that. So what would happen is that Bolton would go to Shadel Adelson's uh, residence or offices in Las Vegas. Sheldon Adelson would call Trump because Trump always takes Sheldon Adelson's calls, according to Alan Dershowitz anyway. Um, and so basically he would take Sheldon Adelson's call and Sheldon Adelson would be like, hey Trump, here's John Bolton, he wants to talk to you. Right, so um, that is really important here, I think, because um, it shows you who is the power behind John Bolton, right? So John Bolton is a crazy guy. Um, I think, you know, we can pretty much acknowledge that. Um, but, you know, he is a representative of a certain, you know, uh, of certain interests, right? 
Um, you know, it's not just, he's this one guy and he has these crazy ideas. I mean, he represents people and there's powerful people that like his ideas and want him in power. And Shadel Adelson, Sheldon Adelson is one of them. So I think that's worth, uh, that's worth pointing out. Um, and, you know, with, with John Bolton, there's so many things we can name him and shame him for. Um, so, Alan, I'll let you pick the, uh, the next policy disaster uh, that Bolton has been responsible for. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know where to start. Um, I suppose he's never really met a war he didn't like. He spent so much of 2015, I remember, actively trying to submarine Obama's efforts to de-escalate tensions with Iran. He even penned an opinion piece calling for, uh, for a regime change. He said, to stop Iran's bomb, bomb Iran. And the New York Times shamefully published it. Uh, left unstated is that even the U.S. intelligence uh, services accept that Iran has no nuclear weapons program whatsoever. But making threats like this uh, is part of Bolton's DNA. He, in fact, uh, in 2003, when in the build-up to Iraq, he told a Brazilian diplomat and the head of the Organization for the Prohib <coughs> Prohibition of Chemical Weapons that he'd murder his children if he didn't quit his job. He said, I know where your children live. The diplomat was negotiating with Saddam Hussein to allow weapons inspectors into Iraq, which would have undermined Bolton's push for war. So that's just, you know, a couple of examples off the top of my head. No, and those are very telling examples. I mean, this guy doesn't mess around. He likes to threaten people. Um, he threatens countries in public. He threatens people in private. Um, he is a dangerous man, uh, to say the least. And he has a lot of... Um, you know, it's really interesting that he is currently national security advisor of the United States because he also has a history of directly undermining U.S. Uh, interests um, in favor of uh, the state of Israel. Let's remember that um, John Bolton is a favorite of the donors of the Republican Jewish Coalition. This in includes Bernard Marcus of Home Depot, Paul Singer, uh, who's a, the big neocon donor funds uh, foundation for the defense of democracies in, in politicians like Marco Rubio. And Sheldon Adelson, um, when he was appointed, he was praised by, uh, you know, uh, members of the Likud in Israel and super right wing figures um, who were just over the moon that he was going to be uh, appointed because they said that his appointment would, quote, uh, would make uh, the Trump administration, quote, the most sympathetic administration toward Israel of all time. And this is because... Uh, Bolton, when he was in the Bush administration, gained a reputation for repeatedly favoring Israeli interests over American interests to the extent that it, it even freaked out Israeli officials. And that should tell you something. So for one example, um, Danny Gillerman, he was former Israeli ambassador to the UN. He, uh, when Bolton was also uh, ambassador to the, uh, to the UN for the United States, uh, Gillerman said that Bolton would direct, quote, direct fire on his own forces, meaning the U.S. government, to advance the goals of Israel at the U.S.'s um, expense. And he actually, you know, uh, undermined and circumvented uh, Colin Powell and also Condoleezza Rice on more than one occasion. Um, he even uh, traveled to Israel when he was working in the State Department without State Department clearance, without approval from his higher up, Colin Powell, uh, because he wanted to negotiate privately in Israel in order to try and get uh, Israel's policy objectives implemented over the U.S., uh, specifically with relation to war with Iran. Um, because at the time, Colin Powell's policy was no war with Iran, and Bolton was trying to change that, and he basically traveled to Israel without government, U.S. government approval to try and favor the Israeli stance. That is really insane. Um, also, he, he made uh, many private and unannounced visits to Israel to have meetings with uh, Israeli officials, including officials of the Mossad, which is Israel's intelligence service, and also uh, Mayor Dagan, who was at the time uh, the, the director of the Mossad. I mean, can you imagine... Anyone else, like in any other country, you know, um, the guy that's named National Security Advisor of the, uh, of the United States, you know, did this stuff with any other country that wasn't Israel. Let's replace Israel with Russia for a second, right? So the guy that's appointed, you know, U.S. National Security Advisor of the United States in the past uh, favored, Ru you know, Russia's national security interest over the United States and made all these unannounced private visits to Russian intelligence. I mean, right. So th that's why this is really insane that he, you know, there was, there was no complaint about this in mainstream media or really most media outlets at all. Um, about Bolton being appointed as, as national security advisor, uh, given this track record and also given his, his connection to Sheldon Adelson, who has a lot of, um, really controversial views um, 
on Israel, including uh, the complete uh, that Israel needs to completely annex the West Bank, expel Palestinians. He says Palestinians don't even exist; they're like a made-up people. Um, and he also has advocated for nuking um, Iran uh, without, um, like, like preemptively uh, as a form of negotiation. Actually, that's how Sheldon Adelson wanted to negotiate the Iran deal: was nuking uh, Iran. Uh, first in the desert and then saying the next one would be on uh, the capital that is like home to like 15 million people. <laughs> wow. One, one of the reasons that I find Bolton so interesting and kind of kind of almost refreshing in a perverse way is he just says the quiet part loud all the time. He doesn't hide his disdain for other countries or law or human rights or anything. Um, he was the US ambassador to the United Nations and made it absolutely clear that he, he, he found the whole organization completely awful. He's on record as declaring that uh, the happiest moment of his life was when the US pulled out of the International Criminal Court. Uh, on Fox News he openly admitted that the Venezuela coup was not about democracy but, he, uh, but about getting US control over Venezuela's vast oil resources. He said it would make a big difference to the US economically if we could have American oil companies invest in and produce the oil capabilities of Venezuela. And that's why I think John Bolton very much deserves his place in our hall of shame. Right. Well, I, I really like that you brought this up because it connects really well uh, to what we were talking about earlier with Mike Pompeo, how Mike Pompeo was basically saying um, U.S. covert policy and past meddling that was you know, done behind closed doors. He's doing it in public. Bolton's the same way. He does these uh, same policies that other people, specific, you know, other neocons or other, you know, military hawks or whatever, um, have pursued in private or behind closed doors for a long time. He does it out in the open. And this is honestly, I would really argue, the only positive thing that, that Bolton does because not only are people able to be aware of it, but people are able to see uh, the real face uh, of U.S. empire and how the U.S. government, you know, really works. I mean, people act offended when Bolton does this stuff and they act offended when Trump does this stuff and Pompeo does this stuff. But the U.S. has been doing this stuff for decades. Um, and, you know, it's just they're, they're just doing it out in the open now. I mean, so, I mean, I think you can argue that 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 helps to an extent because it helps American uh, more Americans, hopefully, and more people around the world to see. Uh, how the U.S. government really operates and what the real goals are of U.S. empire. John Bolton, not a good guy. All right, that's about all the time we have got for this week on the Mintcast, uh, the podcast of mintpressnews.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, do share it on social media or become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash mintpressnews. For myself, Alan McLeod, and Whitney Webb and the entire Mint Press News team, until next week, stay fresh. Mm-hmm.